Hey everybody, welcome to Pillars. How's it going? Thank you so much for being here. As always, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, and today I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with Stephanie Case. Stephanie is a Canadian human rights lawyer and ultra runner based in the trail running heaven that is Chamonix, France. Stephanie works for the United Nations, the UN, devoting her life to humanitarian causes all over the world and often in war zones. For those who follow Stephanie on social, you know that she often boasts about this work in far-flung places, and she often posts just really eloquently about the mission that she carries in her career, and it's something that I have long wanted to talk to her about. Uh, We go into how she got into human rights law, what it demands, and how she deals with the heaviness of the emotional burden that the work often carries. Uh, But in addition to her work at the UN, Stephanie also founded a charity called Free to Run, which we talk about a lot. This charity endeavors to support women and girls in these conflict areas that Stephanie is so passionate about through the simple yet beautiful sport of running and other outdoor recreation. So we talk a lot about that organization, the circumstances in which it was founded, and how we as privileged outdoor enthusiasts ourselves can be of assistance to that mission. Uh, The organization won a big award in 2020, which we talk about, but one thing that we didn't get to talk about because it happened a few days after we recorded, was that Stephanie herself received a Governor General of Canada's Meritorious Service Medal for her work with Free to Run. Uh, So Stephanie does amazing things. She's well recognized for the amazing work that she does. And she is making a huge difference in the world fighting for the underdog. And in addition to all that, she's also an amazing ultra runner with top finishes at some of the world's hardest races, including four proud finishes at Italy's infamous Tour de Jeans. So there's just so much Stephanie and I could have talked about. We barely scratched the surface of her story in this episode. So I am excited to do round two with her at some point in the near future. And I hope you will find her story just as inspiring as I do. Before we get to it, just a very quick announcement. The Android version of the Pillars app is now officially live. Thank you all so much for your patience. So to the Google users in the audience, go find us in the Google Play Store, download the app, join the growing community. Thank you guys so much for your patience. Now that we've got that behind us, a bunch of new content coming soon, including uh, a nutrition model module led by former podcast guest, Alex Borsuk, which should be up within the app in the next few days. But Android is live. Go check us out if you are an Android user. Okay, on with the show. Please welcome the incredible Stephanie Case. Stephanie Case, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It is great to see you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Don? I am. I'm so great. Uh, I'm catching you (laughs) 
late on a Friday evening for you. It's a Friday kind of mid morning for me. Um, but I guess uh, let's start just like with with where you are in the world. I know you're one of the most well traveled people there is. <laughs> so where are you broadcasting from currently? Yeah, I'm in I'm in trail runner Mecca, I think. Um, I'm in Chamonix, France. Um, so this is where I've I've set up shop. This is where my home is. Um, and yeah, I'm not usually in the place with stable internet. So, um, you know, this is, this is good for me. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness for stable internet and thank goodness for zoom. It allows uh, us to have fun conversations. And I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. As you know, we've been trying to schedule this for a while and, uh, <laughs> you have such an amazing story. And I think there's so many different directions that we could go and, you know, probably take hours and hours. Um, so, you know, we'll probably have to yeah, sort of do round two, round three of these to really fully cover your story and do justice to it. Um, but also, you know, I, we've had to reschedule this a few times this week because of bad weather on my end and losing power. And, you know, what you do in your professional life, you know, I've just felt like I've been inconveniencing you so much, you know, you're out there no, saving the world. You're out there. Saving, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned from the places where I've worked, I mean, yeah. Dealing with power outages, it's not something you normally have to deal with with someone in the U S but yeah. that happens to me on a regular basis. So, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. H hadn't <laughs> thought about that. You know, you have experience yeah. in places that don't have as stable <laughs> of a power grid as we typically do here. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're, recording at a time when yeah not only uh Oregon has lost a lot of power but Texas is in the news of you know yeah. thousands and thousands of people losing power so the luxuries of life uh that we take for granted and uh you know things that people don't get to enjoy in uh, many of the parts of the world that you frequent but Anyway, I'm so glad we're doing this and I apologize for all the scheduling and mishaps. Uh, I know you're a very busy person, so I'm very glad to steal some of your time now. Um, but, you know, anyway, I just uh, want to start with, you know, some general background stuff with you. Obviously, you know, a lot of people know know your story within the sport, but uh, for those who don't, I think it'd be great to just start with a little background where you grew up, what your childhood was like, how you ultimately ended up in the career uh, that you're in now, and, and maybe weave in your running history as well. Sure. Uh, so I'm Canadian. Uh, some people might be able to pick that up from my accent, but I, I try to hide it <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I grew up in um, Ontario, basically in a suburb outside of Toronto. And I think, you know, I'm not one of those people who was an ultra runner and always ran, you know, cross country or track or was an athlete or anything like that. I was a school geek. I focused very heavily on my grades, on, <laughs> on math, on science. Um, and, you know, I was quite a perfectionist. I, I can remember being up late at night when I was like four years old, stressing about what university I would get into. I mean, that, yeah. that kind of <laughs> was, yeah, that, that described me. Um, but I think, you know, I was still quite I think the lawyer was, was in me from, from the beginning. I was always looking at, you know, how to, if rules were given to me, you know, how to either circumvent the rules, how to find loopholes, just push the barriers a little bit more. I have an older sister 
Cam, who I'm really close with. And she's the complete opposite. She, you know, doesn't like to cause waves. She's like a peacemaker. And, and I came in like a little bit of a hurricane in my family, I think. Um, just really, yeah, trying to trying to push things. So I didn't really have any kind of a running background. I can remember running, I entered a cross country race when I was in like grade five, maybe. And I ended up doing super well, but I was so, (laughs) I was so embarrassed because my face had turned red and, you know, I was really shy and I just, I was so embarrassed that my, (laughs) I finished this race. I think I was like fifth out of 200 people. And yeah. And, and so I just never did it again. You know, I had no, other than my grades, I didn't really have that kind of confidence that you needed to be an athlete, you know, to be one of the cool uh, kids, to be a jock, to be, I was, I was in the band, you know, I played the flute. Okay. I was like the school geek. I was not an athlete. So I, I didn't really, yeah, I, I, I didn't really kind of find the, the sport side of me until a little bit later when I also found my confidence. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, well, I mean, I guess, uh, sort of pick up there though. I mean, what, what you, you said yeah. you were, you were a lawyer, you know, even when you were before you were <laughs> actually a lawyer and yeah. uh, you, you were very, uh, focused on your academic side of your life as well. And it's, yeah. it's actually funny, you know, one of the themes that I figured we'd get to eventually, but we might as well talk about now is, you know, this kind of, uh, this theme of, of sort of very intelligent, smart female lawyers that occupy our sport, you know, yourself and Fernanda Maciel, who is an environmental lawyer, uh, growing up in Brazil where she was educated and Amelia Boone, of course, everybody knows she's, uh, you know, an attorney for, for Apple. And I know even like Claire Gallagher, I think is thinking about going to law school. What are the no sort way. of well? Yeah, maybe I, I'm not sure if I'm really allowed to divulge that. I'll text her and we can edit <laughs> okay, that out if she's if she's not okay with it. But I talked to her on the phone a couple of weeks ago and she said she was considering it. So uh, anyway, sorry, Claire, if I'm speaking out of turn. But um, but yeah, I mean it, it's interesting, right? Because like there there is that competitive side to being an attorney. Um, do you think like that sort of inspired you to eventually kind of like find your, uh, niche as a runner and find that talent and confidence that you have as a runner now? That's an interesting question. Cause I don't know if I would equate being a lawyer to having a competitive spirit, actually. Uh, I mean, for me, it was all about trying to get as many skills as I could trying to get as much training as I could to learn how to argue better, how to, um, negotiate better, how to push better for things that I thought needed to be pushed, not necessarily for myself, but you know, now I'm, I'm, I work in human rights and for me, becoming a lawyer was just, you know, an extra set of skills. Um, and it's something that I bring into my everyday life. I mean, when, when, if you think about it, when you talk with your friends, when you, you know, are at the store trying to, um, look at products or negotiate a, a deal on a, on a new house, it's all of these skills that I, that I draw upon, um, with being a lawyer that now I use in, in, in my life. But, um, yeah, perhaps the same kind of like problem solving, um, the same kind of problem solving nature actually applies to to work and 
um, and running because when I go out on the trails, you know, I'm not one of those people that has everything figured out. I, (laughs) there's a set of circumstances in front of me. There's a distance, there's weather, there's, there's a challenge in front of me and I might not actually be able to see how I'm going to complete it, but you figure it out. There's always a way and law is the same. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got a, a set of rules and sometimes it looks like you can't do something mm-hmm. <laughs> or you're prevented from doing something, but there's, there's always a way and you just have to be smart enough to, to find your path basically. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. And I always love yeah. to sort of explore these things when talking to people on the show, like how their professional life informs their athletic life and vice versa. And of course you work for the UN now, and we'll go into much more detail <laughs> about that. You're a human rights lawyer, um, which I want to talk about at length, but before we do, I'm curious about sort of like the education that it takes and like the path that you took to get to the place that you are now. Can you talk a little bit about your educational history, the things that led you on the path that that you ultimately took? Sure. So um, I ended up going to um, university in in Ontario. I studied international development um, and psychology as as a double major. And it's funny because, you know, I came in to university, you know, top of my class from high school um, and and really, you know, school was my life. And then I came into university and kind of discovered <laughs> partying and, and I joined the, I joined the rowing team and, um, you know, that was a bit of a, um, something new and you know joining the rowing team it was it's the best in Canada because you've got two months of a really hard season and then <laughs> 10 months off and so and then you have drink you have drinking buddies for 12 months of the year it's great exactly and then you can say finally I was like that cool person I was this cool athlete I was a rower but yeah so my grades plummeted in in my first year it was um it was pretty terrible I you know I had to write letters to my scholarship back and um you know that was that was a bit of a, a bit of a turning point for me but, um, yeah, I, um, I really started delve. This is when I first started delving into international work and I went and, um, did a project in Ghana in West Africa and I knew that I, I wanted to continue. And so, um, yeah, I went into, to law school and in between I spent a summer uh, down in South America. I was working on a wildlife biodiversity research project, um, in the Amazon jungle which was super fun and, you know, living with indigenous communities and traveling around and really trying to push myself, um, outside of my, my very narrow window of mm-hmm. experience growing up in a privileged suburb in, in Canada. Um, I spent a summer as part of my degree, you know, living in Thailand with a family, teaching Buddhist monks, how to speak English and then mm-hmm. being mentored in Buddhism. And I wrote something ridiculous about how Buddhism was changing in a modernizing Thailand. I, d- I don't even think I actually wrote out my final thesis. I think I handed in like a hand bound leather journal with like drawings <laughs> of like Buddha poses. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, so yeah. And then I went to, to law school and I, I did that on the West coast in, in Vancouver. And, and that's where I really, um, I really picked up running um, it had been, it had been a bit of a journey. I'd actually gotten quite good at rowing when I was in, in my undergrad, but 
you know, back then, and this is a, a whole different ball of wax, but um, I was on the lightweight um, rowing team and for, you know, young women in their like late teens, early twenties, to be put into a sport where you have to weigh in. And mm. if you're a pound over or half a pound over, you disqualify your whole crew. It just, you know, it, it set me on a path that I knew if I continued, I, I, I'd be in a bad place. Yeah. I, it would be, you know, eating disorders were normalized in that mm. setting. Yeah. And, yeah. and that wasn't something I, I could see how I was changing. I could see how my, my relationship with food was changing and that's not something I wanted. And when I came into running, it was such a relief because especially with, especially with ultra running, which came quite quickly, you know, your relationship with food is essential and like food is fuel. And it was such a positive um, driving force in my life that anyway, I'm, I'm jumping topics. Um, yeah. the, the school, the education thing continues, you know, I did, um, <laughs> you know, it's painful. It's painful to think about after law school, I um, clerked um, for a judge at the mm. British Columbia court of appeal went and did an internship um, in Malaysia with the UN, came back to my law firm, blah, 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 bounced around. But then I went back and did an LLM um, in international human rights and humanitarian law. So can you explain how, how that kind of a degree is different from your standard law degree? Yeah. So my law degree, yeah, my, my law degree was a JD, just like the law degrees in, in the States. Right. Um, so for a doctor. And most people don't go on to do an LLM. Um, in Europe, more people will do it because your law degree, your first degree is your undergraduate degree. So in Europe, an LLM, a master's of law um, is more common. But in the States, you know, once you've done your law degree, you've done at least seven years of university. Why would you do another one? Yeah. Um, but yeah, for, for me, I knew I wanted to, I had an obsession with Afghanistan. I knew I wanted to work in international human rights and particularly I wanted to work in international humanitarian law, which is the law of war. So, and, so sorry to, to cut you off. I'm curious, like where that comes from in you, you know, like, cause yeah. when you, when you, when you're studying law or whatever, there's a million different avenues that you can pursue. Right. And it strikes me and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, some paths are certainly more lucrative than others. Some paths are a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of more, I guess, satisfy some sentimental value or some mission driven purpose, which is kind of more the avenue that that you pursued. So what was it sort of about you that made you want to, to go down the human rights avenue as opposed to getting some cushy corporate law job? Well, I mean, they, you know, let's be clear. I did have a cushy corporate law job. You know, I, I got hired after first year university and law school um, basically your, your future career in law is based on your first year, um, law school exams. And I killed my first year law school exams and then I could relax the next couple of years. So I was hired by a, a major law firm in New York. Um, and I kind of, you know, I knew that I would just have to work as a lawyer for a little bit to gain credibility before I did what I actually wanted to do. But actually it was, it was a bit strategic because the major law firms in New York, they have these incredible pro bono programs where you can get your own asylum case. You can get your own, um, 
you know, really interesting human rights case and lead it in court. Whereas if you went straight into, you know, a not pro- not for profit, it, it would take at least five years before they gave you that kind of responsibility. So, yeah, I went into mergers and acquisitions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's like yeah. the opposite of human rights law, probably, huh? But it is. But you yeah. know, the whole point for me was like, let me go into the most, you know, kind of aggressive, testosterone-filled, inhospitable environment that I could go into in a corporate sense, and use my psychology degree to like figure these oh. people out. Yeah. You know, figure out how they work, figure out this landscape. I I knew I needed to understand that world in order for me to to go into the nonprofit world or the human rights world or, you know, and I, I still draw on those skills when I'm meeting with a named armed group. You know, I'm like, yeah. okay, they're not nearly as scary as the assholes that I used to work with. Just kidding. Wow. No, the yeah. people I used to work with were, were, were great. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think I always had this sense um, growing up of just wanting to help the underdog because I had felt like the underdog. You know, I had been bullied in school. I had I'd been the unpopular kid, you know, and so I was always the one who was hanging out with the other ones who were teased or who were unpopular. And, you know, you take that playground setting and you put it into into life and and it's the same thing. You know, yeah. you look at people who are being excluded, who are being discriminated against, who are being left out. It's it's the exact same thing just on a on a much more complicated um scale. So it was figuring out, you know, how do I use my skills, use all of the privileges I have of education, of you know, opportunities to actually be able to sit you know, with these people who are in worse circumstances and pull the levers I need to pull to, to help. Um, but that begins with, with understanding, you know, understanding where they're coming from. And so, yeah. that That's so cool. I mean, just fighting on behalf of the underdog, I think is something that uh, is so respectable. And especially, you know, when the alternative is more comfortable, probably with higher pay and, you know, probably a, just a, a different, easier life, both physically and emotionally. Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty cool thing, you know, and, and I think a, a lot of people who are listening probably are in, inspired by, you know, taking that mission driven avenue as opposed to the more economically driven avenue probably. So anyway, you work at the UN. So let's talk a little bit about <laughs> what uh, what it practically means to be a human rights lawyer for the UN. Yeah. Can you talk about kind of like what your focus is, what your day-to-day is like? Sure. Yeah. And it's, I say human rights lawyer because that is just easier to understand. Um, but I work in human rights. I would say some people who work in human rights for the UN have a legal background and, and some don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but with my legal background, it means I can do a wider array of, of jobs. So um, I like working in conflict zones. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm not. I'm actually working remotely from a new job at, at headquarters. Um, so right now, I'm actually working in the UN's um, operations and crisis center. Um, so it's a 24-7 shop. Um, I kind of switch on and off duty managing the, the watch room. And um, what I'm ultimately trying to do is use human rights rights information better for early warning and for conflict prevention. Um, so it's it's pretty interesting because I have to cover all of the conflicts <laughs> and all of the all of the brewing conflicts. But you know, it's one of those things where um, the UN system 
um, still needs to enhance the way that it it views human rights information, which is often seen as being politically sensitive or um, yeah, um, a little bit more difficult to to handle. But human rights is really the the canary in the, in the mine shaft. Um, it's the information that tells us, you know, when things are going wrong and, and when we need to step in and help. Uh, um, but in my in my past jobs, yeah, I've worked in in a number of conflict areas. So I was in Gaza for a couple of years. I was in Afghanistan this past time around for two and a half years. Um, I was in South Sudan, but on the humanitarian side, on the NGO side. And, you know, and I did different roles in, in these um, jobs, but in a very basic sense, human rights is about looking at, um, you know, the relationship between the people and those who are in power, whether it's an armed group who has control over a certain territory or if it's the, you know, government that's been elected and, and looking at that relationship of whether rights are being respected and when they're not, what kind of actions are, are taken after. And international humanitarian law, the laws of war are really about seeing when you have an active conflict situation, how the parties to the conflict are respecting basic rules of humanity. Mm. You know, like the law of war takes as a given that war will happen, but you know, for decades and decades, we as an international community have realized that there are certain things that cannot be done at any time. Mm. And that includes, you know, targeting civilians, targeting people who have not chosen to actively fight on behalf of a particular group or country um, in that war. Those people deserve to be um, protected at all times. Mm. And so, you know, my work in Afghanistan was about really documenting you know, every incident of the, con of the conflict that resulted in civilian casualties or civilian harm, and then working with the various parties to the conflict to help them acknowledge the harm that was caused and also change the way that they're fighting war so that they can better protect civilians because it's not within their interest to, um, to harm civilians either. So really, really fascinating work that I... I love, but yeah, it can take many forms. That's that's why yeah. my job is great. Best job in the world. <laughs> it's it, it's so interesting. So, talking about how you've said that you know you you're drawn to, um, or you focused on this humanitarian work in conflict zones, and you said also like that you knew you wanted to work in Afghanistan, and um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, to me, it's like. Um, you know, it's like, it takes a, a certain type of person that like wants, wants to go to these places, wants to go to the conflict zones and deal with these yeah. messy things. And as you said, you know, even in, in war, there's things that are sort of over the line and you want to be there to fight yeah. for the underdog. I imagine yeah. that it can also be like kind of a heavy burden that you have to carry, you know, to go to these these conflict zones and to fight on behalf of these, these people who, you know, are really in a precarious situation. Do you find that it has sort of like an emotional, uh, does it take an emotional toll on you as well? Obviously I'm, I'm sure it's rewarding work, but, um, you know, going back to, you know, the, the cushy corporate life that a lot of lawyers lead, uh, you're basically doing the opposite. I'm just curious, sort of like how that, how that, um, you know, sort of like, just the the burden of that work might weigh on yeah. you emotionally. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said before, um, you know, in some instances, 
some low moments, I really wish that I didn't have this in me because it is harder. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder. You know, the easiest job that I ever got in the world was my highest paid job. And that was my law firm job. And, you know, I, I would have been set. I know I would have done well in that environment. I know it. I mean, maybe that sounds arrogant, but I know I would have done well. Sure. And, um, you know, it was maybe, how's my math? Maybe eight, nine years after that. And I, <laughs> I was in a tent in South Sudan, you know, earning probably a 10th of what I used to earn at my law firm wow. later when I should be earning more. And, you know, I was covered in bug bites and I was just, you know, praying to get some kind of disease that would get me medevaced out, but wouldn't kill me just so that I could get a little bit of a break. And I thought, God, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? But, um, I really believe that, and maybe this is a a bit too woo woo, but I really believe that everyone has a role to play Mm. on this planet. And, you know, it doesn't, not everyone's going to get a Nobel prize. Not everyone has to do something that can be written about in papers, but every person's place is important. And if you know what your role is, whether it's to be a parent or, um, you know, to um, work in a church or to go to war zones, whatever it is, you know, do that, do that job. Maybe it is working in a law firm and earning money so that you can support your family. But if you know what your purpose is and you don't do that, then I really believe you are leaving a hole behind that other people can't fill because that, that was your place. That was your place in the world. And this is my place in the world. And I have no doubt about it. I have, people have asked me before, you know, Oh, if you could do what would be the most ideal job? And I'm like, I'm doing it. I am doing it. This is my ideal job. This is, and there's a certain comfort that I have when I wake up in the morning and I, I don't have any kind of angst about whether I'm following my purpose. I mean, yeah. I would want to change jobs, you know, in term in within this space, but there's a lot of, um, I take a lot of comfort from that, but to your question of the, of the emotional burden. And um, that's why I am, you know, working in New York for the moment, because I, the UN doesn't move you around. You have mm. to move yourself. And I think it's really important to take time out from war zones. I, I only know how to do my job one way and it's wow. like all in. And that means, um, yeah, it can be, it can be quite, it can be, quite, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to yeah. think about it too much because I will get emotional. It can be quite yeah. emotional. You know, yeah. you're meeting with people with victims who have lost like everything, like yeah. everything. And there is no way that that can impact you. There's yeah. absolutely no way. And I think um, the minute that it doesn't impact me is when I stay too long. And so it's important to get out before that happens when you still have functioning emotions and, and you should be affected by it. But, but yeah, it's um, it, it, it can be quite heavy. Yeah. Because you, you have to believe that what you're doing makes a difference. And so if you're working on something and you can't get movement, even if it's impossible, even mm. if it's, you know, you're going up against the U S government or the Taliban or 
someone where, you know, little me, I'm not going to change, you know, giant policies, but you have to believe that you, you can have that effect. And so it feels like a failure when you, when you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm so, so thankful that you would sort of share that. I mean, there's so many beautiful things in what you just said, you know, and, and pursuing like your life's mission of what you just know that you're here to accomplish, you know, and also, yeah, maybe have it be more of a tour of duty, right? Go into the conflict for a while and take that burden on yourself and know that you're having an incredible impact on some people who are in very precarious positions but know that at some point you got to take care of yourself too, maybe cycle out of it and come back to it. And, uh, but yeah. still, you know, with the yeah. overarching mission being the same, it's really an inspiring thing. And just kind of like thinking about people who are probably in, as inspired as I am by your story and by hearing you talk about it. Um, what do you think, like for somebody who's listening, who who's inspired to sort of take a similar path in, in their life, what do you think from your experience you did really well? Or is there any advice that you would give to people who, uh, who want to get into to similar work? Yeah. Well, first I'll say, you know, one thing which applies to people in, in whatever job they're doing, because I've got a lot of friends who, you know, are in banking or maybe in corporate law or in, in other jobs. And they've said to me before, like, oh, I just wish, you know, I could be like you and, mm. you know, follow my, my passion, but I can't. And I'm like, okay, what, why can't you, you know, honestly, why can't you? And it's, I know it's scary for people to shift, to change career paths. Um, and of course there's always like financial concerns, but I really believe that if you know what you want to do and you're not doing it, as long as you know, again, I, I do appreciate that there are financial concerns, but there, there are ways to make it happen. And I have never met anyone and I challenge anyone to come up with someone. Tell me if you've met someone who said, yeah, I, I quit my day job. I followed my passion and I really regret it. You know, I, I should have just, I should have just stayed in the night. No one yeah. says that ever. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Right. So anyway, that's, that's, that's my pitch on that. Um, yeah, I think, but like, you do, you know, need, for, do you need like a law degree or like, what are some things that you think you did well? And what are other, yeah. other things, any advice you'd give to people who would come yeah. to you and ask that question? I, I mean, I, I do get asked that question a lot specifically about this kind of work. And I think, um, I think people need to know that, you know, when you say international human rights, it sounds quite sexy, but mm. oftentimes a lot of what I do is, you know, sitting in front of a computer, but in a war zone. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the education side of things was, was huge for me. Um, also a lot of volunteering now volunteering, I think is also a privileged activity because you have to be in a certain financial position to be able to donate your time. And that's a whole separate ball of wax, but there is real value in working domestically on these same types of issues, you know, working at your local community center, working at you know, local community organizations. It's not as sexy as going and working in a refugee camp, but it's the same skills that you need, you know, to be able to understand people, to understand cultural sensitivity, to, you know, know how to approach these issues. Um, you can do that in your own backyard first before 
you know, you launch out into the world. Cause it's, it's quite difficult. I mean, it took me years to be able to become a UN volunteer in Afghanistan. You know, it was, that was way harder to get than my six figure, you know, salary job wow. in, in New York. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have the capacity to, to travel, to, um, contribute to projects that you are, you know, interested in, do that, but also do it in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the advocacy work that I see people doing or community volunteering, you know, it's not Instagram worthy, but it's, it's, it, it's valuable. It means something and, and that will help get you on, on the right path. But yeah, it's awesome. long. It's a, it's a long. <laughs> yeah. So probably starting long. with, with volunteering locally and, and then maybe looking yeah. for opportunities to volunteer in places yeah. that, that you feel, feel pulled to and, and, and putting yeah. off, putting off any thought of making a career out of it probably for a little while is, is a, is a smart way to go. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I think there's no, there's no one there's no one right path. You know, yeah. I, I have always just taken the next, the next right step. And, yeah. and that I think if you just get engaged in things that you're interested in and, and constantly <laughs> keep a lookout for something else, yeah. then that's a good way to go. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So I want to transition and talk a bit about your charity. Now your latest Instagram post talks about free to run the charity that you started yeah. a number of years ago and it touched me so deeply and I identified with it so much. Um, and so anyway, I, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about free to run. What is it? And, and specifically in what circumstances was it born? Because I think this is a really <laughs> important thing to highlight. Yeah, no, thanks for giving me the chance to do that. I, I got a lot of responses on, on that one. Um, I think because of the moment we're in and a lot of people are going through tough times right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I had done a year of working in, in Afghanistan and this is in 2012, 2013. And um, when I went there, everyone told me I'd have to quit running because I'm living in an armed compound and I wouldn't be able to go outside anymore, blah, blah, blah. So of course, you know, I, I committed to continuing to run on a treadmill or doing loops around the compound. And I thought the best way that I'd be able to use my running to be able to help people in Afghanistan and specifically women was to just, you know, raise money for a local women's shelter, um, by, um, running three ultra marathons. And so I, I, I did that. I raised 10 grand and, you know, it didn't feel the way that I thought it would because in going to visit the women at the shelter, they didn't give a shit about, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but they didn't give Please, a shit about, yeah. um, <laughs> about the money. They wanted to do the running. And, you know, it seems like such a simple thing, but I had made so many assumptions about, you know, maybe what they might want to do, um, what they might be interested in, what might be possible. The fact that they were even thinking about going and running outside in a place like Afghanistan, where, you know, they couldn't even leave the shelter, even covered up in a burqa without being, you know, worried about getting killed for some of them. And so I spent the year trying to find other organizations to incorporate these ideas. Um, not just about women in sport, because, you know, you might have an organization say, yeah, yeah, we do, you know, an annual volleyball tournament with some woman from Kabul inside. Mm. Um, but the idea about actually getting, you know, finding ways to create the opportunities for women to go safely and boldly outside. Yeah. And 
Yeah, it, I just, I couldn't get anyone to take that on. And so, you know, this idea was percolating in, in the back of my, in the back of my head and my life continued. I went to Kyrgyzstan to work for another organization and it was awful. And I ended up having to bring a gender discrimination claim against my boss. I was given like 24 hours to leave the country. And then all of a sudden I found myself, you know, unemployed, kind of felt disgraced. It was a really terrible experience where I felt like, you know, I was asked, you know, what kind of clothing did I wear? Did I bring this on myself, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, geez. And yeah. And then the plot thickens. I had been dating someone and moved, you know, to Hong Kong to be with him. So suddenly I was, you know, like a traveling spouse, but not even a spouse with no job in Hong Kong and just feeling completely out of my element. Yeah. And then after 13 days, he dumps me. <laughs> so, so you just so moved to I, Hong Kong and, and the relationship <laughs> disintegrates in a moment when you're already sort of in, in a low point. So, Oh my God. I mean, I, I tend to be like, yeah, it was the little perfectionist kid who was always uh, like the best at everything. And then all yeah. of a sudden I was unemployed, single. And then it was like the middle of winter and I'm moving back in with my parents in rural Canada. And I was just like, I literally, I spent like a week drinking gin and tonics. I picked up a, a Guinness book of world records and I looked through the damn book trying to find a world record that I could break. I'm not even kidding. Really? Just so I could be like, yeah, no. <laughs> just, just so you could get some momentum back. Yeah, to just break a world record. This is, I think, so yeah, emblematic yeah, of yeah. your of your personality, it seems. <laughs> I will tell you, one of the easiest records to break was the um, four-person costume in a marathon and also fastest marathon carrying a home appliance. So anyway, I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I was going to run a marathon with a toaster, but anyway, um, so I'm in this moment setting, setting the scene and some very, very dear friends of mine, um, actually the founder of racing the planet, um, uh, which runs stage races yep. and her husband would travel through Afghanistan in the sixties. They, they brought me over, um, to, to spend some time with them. And they said, look, Steph, what do you want to do? You're a capable person. You know, where, where's your passion? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to get women outside in Afghanistan, hiking mm. in the mountains. And they gave me the seed funding for that. Wow. Um, and it the, was, do they yeah. still run racing the planet? That series? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. What are their names? Give them some credit here on the air. So yeah. 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 Mary, Mary Gaddams, um, and her husband, um, Alistair. So, they, I mean, yeah, without them, this, this wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened. That um, is so cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the running community, you know, they know how important running yeah. is and Alistair had seen um, Afghanistan himself. And so, you know, I ended up getting a job in South Sudan. I was in this tent, you know, earning like no money, just like completely overwhelmed. And we had electricity, like maybe three hours a day. And I was putting together the plans for free to run. And really, you know, the mission behind the organization is to use outdoor adventure and sport to create female leaders in areas of conflict. Mm. And it's not just about the, you know, individual skills and empowerment and everything that we can get through sport. It's also about the community change. Because when you get women and girls boldly going outside and reclaiming public space in these 
countries and these areas that they where they've been excluded from actually going outside, when you get them reclaiming that space, it changes the views of society about the roles that they can and should be playing. Wow. And that is absolutely critical to, to what we do. And we're now, you know, it's it's been almost seven years since I started the organization. We're now in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we're in five provinces across Afghanistan, including in the South, mm. which is like, you know, Taliban uh, okay. heartland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we even, you know, had a refugee um, part of the charity that we spun off into a whole separate charity um, back in Hong Kong. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I look back on that and I, I just know that that whole thing came out of one of the worst lowest moments of my life. And it was having someone say to me, you know, tell tell me what you want to do. Tell me what your passions are. You know, I'll, I'll give you this, this boost and you go do it. And, and it's come from there. And that is, that is just so amazing. You know, I mean, it gives me, gives me goosebumps. And like I said, I identify with this so much because sort of the thing that I'm working on now, and to be clear, you know, you're like, you know, saving the world and I'm doing something on a much smaller scale, but you know, this is sort of like built out of my own sort of, you know, um, period of, you know, desperation and a a moment where I just like, couldn't see what was next. Didn't understand, you know, what the future was for me. And, uh, so, you know, for people who are going through those types of moments now, I think, you know, it's, it's heartening to hear, you know, that you've been able to create this just incredible thing. That's having a huge, huge impact on women around the world and changing that public perception as well within these countries where women are, are not as empowered as, you know, you've been lucky to grow up. Um, and you know, it just, I think it's just so cool and uh, so admirable. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to brag a little bit because I know you guys received an award, uh, last year. Can you talk about, about that award, uh, and what it felt like, you know, was it a validation of, uh, all the hard work you'd put into it, et cetera? Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, first I'll say, um, and I know I'm, I'm screwing up your flow because I just keep jumping around. So I'm the worst person to go. <laughs> no, on this is great. This is great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really think, um, you know, when I did that post the other day on, on Instagram, someone said to me, it's a quote, I think from someone who worked in Obama's administration, like ne- never waste a crisis. Mm. I'm probably butchering the quote, but yeah. You know, a crisis is that, a terrible thing to waste. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, when, when things are at their worst, that is when there's the most potential for positive change. Yeah. That's my theory for going into war zones. And that's my theory for, you know, a lot of the moment that we're in right now. And then I think a lot of people are in, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to continue to doubt yourself. And it doesn't mean you're not going to continue to have challenges, but, um, that's not a bad thing because it's, it's the people who do constantly question themselves that actually end up getting somewhere. So, yeah. So for free to run, um, we had tried for a number of years, um, for this beyond sport, um, global award. And we just, we just weren't quite there yet. You know, we were still sorting out our model of what we wanted to do. And, you know, over the years we've developed not just the outdoor sports piece, but we've developed our own curricula, a life skills through sports curriculum, where we use sports to help women learn, um, 
assertiveness and leadership and conflict mediation and communication and all of these skills they can take into, into their life. And also how to, you know, transfer those skills to the rest of their community. And so over the years, we, um, we'd really honed our model and then we, um, won the, the global award for, um, for beyond sport. Um, and it was, yeah, I think it was a real moment of validation for, um, for the, the staff, the Afghan um, and Iraqi staff um, on our team, and also our, 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 we're a very small team. We've only got a few internationals, but we've got a lot more um, of national staff working with us. And I think it's just given us a bit of motivation. You know, last year was a really tough year for mm-hmm. a lot of charities. We had to cut expenses by, you know, six figures, yeah. um, which, isn't, which isn't easy. Um, but it's giving us a little bit, a little bit more of a, a push to keep going forward. And, you know, I think we're at a really interesting time where in the past we've had struggles trying to get people in the UK or in America to care about, you know, women and girls in Afghanistan and Iraq. And now we've all gone through the pandemic. We're still going through the pandemic and everyone in some way has experienced restrictions on their own life. They've experienced not being able to go outside, not being able to go visit the people they want to visit. And in some small way, everyone has now been able to experience what Afghan and Iraqi women and girls go through on a daily basis and for their entire lives, unless there's a circuit breaker. And I think that that's really important. And what I want to try to do is, um, I mean, not in a, I guess in a crude way, I want to capitalize on that moment, yeah. you know, to help build these bridges in the running community, especially, and, and build that sense of humanity. We have to come out of this pandemic better. And this is one of the ways that, you know, that I want to do that. Brilliant. So you mentioned running and I want to get to that <laughs> now. Um, yeah. But before we do, just briefly, just to make sure that we, we don't uh, run out of time. Um, I'm assuming that your charity, you know, is accepts donations, accepts support. Um, do people just go to the website if they want, if they're touched by your story and, and they want to contribute? Yeah. So, um, we definitely accept donations through the website, but one of the, the best ways that we um, can raise funds through the, the running community is actually people, you know, taking on an event or taking on training and, and doing their own crowdfunding, um, you know, for our, our charity, we help with the, the platforms, we help with all of that. Sure. And part of what I'll be doing this year is launching, we've had an ambassador program, but like not really, we've had people that we've called ambassadors, but I'm really trying to structure both a a very high level athlete program and an ambassador program. Maybe I'll pick your brain about this um, later, but um, I really, I really want to bring more people into the, into the free to run family. Um, And in particular, people from more diverse backgrounds, Um, you know, people who are, I'm going to be frank, not, you know, white people like you and me, you know, we are a charity of Afghan and Iraqi women, you know, sure, please. Sure. Um, people who have experienced discrimination, who have experienced exclusion in their own lives, in their own communities, in, in the U S and um, Europe, elsewhere, um, you will be able to relate to the people in our program more than I can. And Great. we want you. 
So yeah, amazing. Yeah. So so for those people that are listening, you you know, reach out to Stephanie directly on her Instagram yes. or uh, yeah, I'll put a link in the uh, in into the my show DMs. Notes. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes too to the the free to run website for people who want to chip in with a with a donation of. Any size, any size I'm sure is appreciated. Yeah. So let's talk about running, shall we? Yeah. It's amazing, man. It's just like, it's so fun to hear like just the, yeah. I mean, I'm just so profoundly impressed by, you know, what you do uh, as a as a professional and as a person. And of course, we haven't even talked about your athletic life yet, which would take an, another two hours to probably do it justice. So we'll, we'll have to do a round two eventually. But as we go into this uh, running subject now and talk about your yeah. athletic life a little bit more deeply, I want to touch on a, a blog post that you posted on January 1st, 2021, because I think it's sort of a metaphor for your running uh, career. So summarize that blog post, if you will. And uh, yeah, maybe the thesis of the post and why you wrote it. I can't even remember what I wrote. Uh, what was the title? This it's was about making yeah. New Year's resolutions that are impossible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this this is unfortunately one of the side effects of having worked in a war zone. My yeah. memory is awful. Yeah, sure, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so I think I was feeling, you know, New Year's Day is, um, it's a bit of an emotional day for me because um, four years ago I had a, I had an accident in the mountains and, um, and I was by myself and, you know, I almost, I almost died. And so New Year's Day is always a day for me when I kind of do a reset. I mean, like for, for many people and, you know, last year sucks. Like no matter who you are, what you were doing last year just sucked. And I started to see people say, oh yeah, but you know, 2021, we're, we're still in COVID and it's yeah. not going to get better for a long time. And the vaccines might not even come. And I just, I, I was over it. I was just done. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt like we needed a moment of just idealism, positivity, optimism, like, let's just go for it. You know, let's, let's get rid of all of this crap and all of these questions and doubt and negativity, and let's just set some huge goals for this year. And yeah. we have no idea what's going to happen. We still don't know what's going to happen, but you know, let's go for it. Sign up for the races that you don't think are going to happen. You know, just <laughs> make those plans for, you know, all of the things that you didn't get to do, all of the things you were deprived of. We can deal with that if it comes to it that you have to delay them again. But you know, you, it shouldn't stop you from, from dreaming. It shouldn't stop you from, from going big and going, going hard. And, and I thought that we all, you know, just needed to do that. And so that's what I did. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the reason I think it's a metaphor is because you you tend to like go for things that are impossible, you know, and and the whole, the whole uh, point of the post is like to set goals that, you know, even if they aren't, realistic uh at least it there's value in in setting them um you know in and of itself um and i wonder i mean i guess you know what i know most about you is that you know you go for these just in the the hardest of the hard races right you go for the (laughs) tour de jeans you go for barclay and uh you've you've 
I mean, play super high at, at Tour de Jean's three-time finisher, I think. And, um, four-time finisher, three-time. Well, <laughs> you're four-time finisher of TDG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I there's, did there, it. Uh, that's probably puts yeah. you in really rare company. Like there's probably not many people who finished. I mean, obviously very few people have finished once, but very few people who finished multiple times, let alone four. So anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, yeah. like what, what about like the, like, why do you go for just the mega hard races? Is it just like part of your personality to where like, you know, I, I don't just want to be a human rights lawyer. I want to be a human rights lawyer in conflict zones. I don't just want to be an ultra runner. I want to do the Barkley and Tour de Chance four times. Uh, talk about that a little I mean, bit. Yeah, I think um, it's just been my approach to running from the beginning. You know, I ran one marathon and I was expecting to like crawl across the finish line and, you know, have that really kind of epic moment. And I didn't get it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's sign up for a 250 kilometer race and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I signed up for that and it was hard, but, um, but I ended up doing quite well and I had had tough moments, but I'd never hit like a life defining soul squishing, um, moment. And so it's just a constant drive to, to set myself up for challenges that I either don't know that I'm going to meet or that I'm pretty sure I'm going to fail because mm-hmm. those are the ones that are most interesting to me. You know, I can sign up for 120 K race. And I know at that distance, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get on the podium, might get like top 20, but like, who cares? You know, who cares? Like I can, I, I'm not going to learn anything from that. I'll, I'll have a good time. I'll do it in training. I'll probably throw up and then I'll have pizza at the end and it'll be great, but it's not going to change me. Mm. And I go into races that I think will help to change me, help to change how I think about myself, how I move through the world, how I think about other um, other relationships, how I approach my job. I mean, it's it's an all encompassing. I'm going into races with giant expectations. I want them to be life changing. So if yeah. they're going to be life changing, then you need to put yourself up to things that that are impossible. Yeah. And the more races you do, that bar of what you think is impossible just moves a little bit further. <laughs> it's so incredible. And you do such a great job of, of sort of beautifully uh, articulating that. I mean, it is just like, well, I mean, the, the real answer, Dylan, is like, I'm not as fast as you. I'm not as fast as, you know, I'm just slow. Okay. I'm just slow. What so you, you need to about? <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, you, you have a long list of amazing, uh, athletic, uh, accomplishments and, uh, certainly, you know, I, I admire your, your, your toughness and your, uh, your willingness to do the things that change you. I think it's just a, a really admirable thing that, uh, we could all probably use a little bit more of, um, you know, one of the other great stories I think from from your running career before we sort of start to wrap up that I'd love to talk about a little bit because I think it's emblematic of the person you are and and how great our sport is too is the story about 
uh, you and Casey at the river crossing at Western States. Uh, yeah. I'm sure this is something you've talked about in the past, probably a number of times, but uh, to be honest, I haven't heard you talk about it and, and I'd love to talk about it with you. So uh, could you just summarize that moment and maybe what it meant to you in your career? Cause I know to Casey, it was like, you know, sort of one of those, um, those life-changing moments where, where you had an amazing impact on somebody else. Yeah, no, thanks. It's a, I haven't talked about it in, in quite a while, actually. It's, um, it was a really lovely memory. I mean, I, um, I got a spot in Western States. I'd been applying for years, but hadn't gotten a spot. And then I won a spot, um, with Strava to be able to enter the race, um, really because of my work with, with free to run. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. cool. And then you know, that was the year of my accident. So January 1st, I'm in the ICU. <laughs> like I remember I emailed Strava maybe like a week after my ribs were all still broken and my liver was all mushed up. And I was like, don't worry, I'm still going to run Western States. Yeah. And they were like, dude, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Casey had sent me a message when I was in the hospital and I I know a lot of people had sent me messages. Um, I don't really remember a lot of them because I was on a lot of morphine, but I remember I had gotten a message from Casey and I just, I thought it was so cool. You know, it was the, you know, unpopular kid in me again, thinking like, wow, you know, this really like well-known, you know, so like accomplished runner has, has sent a message to me when I'm in the hospital. And I just, yeah. I thought, yeah, it really, it, it seemed quite genuine. And, and, um, you know, my mom is a big fan of Casey. And so, um, yeah, it was just really sweet. And, you know, you fast forward to Western States and, um, Casey was obviously having a tough time. She was coming in, you know, having won the year before. Right. Um, and, I think that's I, one of the greatest parts of the story. So we should highlight yeah. that, that she was the defending yeah. chat, the defending Western yeah. States, 100 champion. When this <laughs> She's wearing the F1 bib. Yeah. And, um, you know, I wasn't having a great race. I knew if I had a good day, like my secret goal was to get top 10. And I, I knew I probably could, um, maybe that was arrogant as well, but I, I started throwing up. I was on antibiotics. I started throwing up from like mile 30. I mean, it was just, it was a shit show. Yeah. Um, and you know, I got to the river crossing and you know, my crew's there waiting with the McDonald's and you know, I'm like, I'd already like cut the shorts out of my skirt, um, because of chafing. So I was like running around like naked eating chicken McNuggets <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and Casey was sitting there and I was like, Oh no. Cause I knew, you know, I should not be seeing Casey in in the race. And uh -huh. she was sitting there with Coop with her coach and a couple other people. And she looked so downtrodden. She just looks so upset. And I found out, you know, she'd been sitting there for, you know, at least an hour. And so I offered her some of my McDonald's and she, she rejected it. And, um, you know, I was just chatting with her a little bit and she said that she was going to drop out and, you know, I got, we've all been there. Like yeah. if you are actually going to drop out, then you drop out. You don't sit there sit for, for an, an hour, hour at an aid station and to, and to me, it was her saying, don't let me drop out. <laughs> uh, Maybe that's not what she thought she was saying, but, you know, she had reached out to me and, and, you know, given me a little bit of encouragement when I'd been in the hospital and I was just like, 
you know, this, this is a no brainer. And so I knew if I could just get her off that seat where she was and just get her moving, she would do the rest herself. We've Mm -hmm. all, we've all been there. I mean, it, it was, it was very simple. And so it took, it took a little bit of time, but she said, you know, she's coming up with excuses like, Oh, I don't even have a light anymore. And I had an extra and I was like, yeah, fine. I'll, I'll put the light on you. I was like, just, just get in the boat, just get yeah. in the boat. And she's like, well, I'm just going to drop out when I get to the next age. So I was like, okay, I'm going to drop out when you get to the next age. Just get in the boat, you know? And, and so we got in the boat and, you know, after that, of course, she kept running and she ran past me at one point and she was like, yeah. and then she slowed down a bit and I ran past her and we kind of leapfrogged a little bit, but she, she came back, you know, I said to her, no one cares that yeah. you're behind where you should have been. No one cares. People are behind you. They support you. And like you owe it to yourself to, and you owe it to this course to just finish. You can do this. And it's, you know, it's easy for me to say I wasn't the defending champion. It's hard when you're in that position, when you know that you should be first and you are way farther back. But yeah. I think it was, it was so cool to see. I finished as the last, like, uh, what is it? Silver buckle? Yeah. Yeah. Silver. Yeah. Yep. Um, just, you know, 90 seconds under 24 hours. And she was the first like bronze buckle. Yeah. And it was so cool to see her finish and to see her finish strong. And I'm proud of what she, what she had done. It was, it was one of the best. And then, you know, the next year when I was running Tour de Jeanne, I was having a tough time. You know, she messaged my crew with like a get in the boat message yes. and that's become our, our little thing. Whenever we want to like, you know, reach out to one another, you know, it's just hashtag get in the boat. Get like in the just boat. I can do it. <laughs> I mean, what an amazing story. And yeah, I mean, Casey is just an amazing athlete. And I think yeah. uh, what's so great about our sport is that you know, she probably is equally proud of, of her victory the year before, uh, as she is, you know, this get in the boat year. Um, and there's just an incredible, um, yeah, I mean, that's an incredible achievement in and of itself. And it's so great that you got to be sort of the motivator, um, to help her across that river and to give her, um, yeah, the, the awareness that, you know, the finish line was still achievable and there was still value in, in going after it, even though her competitive ambitions were no longer, uh, realistic and what a beautiful way to end. I have a million more questions and, uh, you know, I'd love to do a round two with you because I just think there's so many different things that we could talk about. So I'm going to hold you to that after tour de glacier, I'm doing 450 K in September, 36,000 meters of climbing. It's going to be epic. So that's so like, the, need- that's like the tour de jaunts, uh, on steroids, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's do a, a post-race conversation about, uh, about that. And maybe we'll, we'll talk more about the things that we didn't get to this time around, but Stephanie, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's so great to chat with you, get to know you a little bit better and, you know, have, have a little human connection here through zoom on the other side of the world. Um, well, so thanks so much. Wait till you're back in, in jam. I mean, are you, are you coming for UTMB? I mean, I'm coming for UTMB, whether or not France allows right. me in, I'm, I'm going to somehow get myself. We'll over work there. it out. Yeah. We'll work yeah. it out. 
We'll see you here. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to seeing you uh, in person, hopefully in August. And uh, in the meantime, yeah. take care of yourself. And thanks so much for coming on the show. No, thanks to you. What an amazing story, right? Thank you so much to Stephanie for giving us an hour of her time. So much we could have talked about. Can't wait to do round two. I hope you guys enjoyed round one. If you did, go check out Stephanie on Instagram. Uh, I've got a link to that in the show notes. Let her know if you enjoyed the show. Give her a follow if uh, you don't already. Send her a DM if you appreciated her message uh, and generally just follow along with what she does there. It's equal parts, great running scenery from Chamonix, France and other sort of socially conscious posts from the mission of her work that she takes so seriously. I also linked to Stephanie's personal website so you can check out her blog there that she updates fairly regularly. You can read the blog that we talk about a bit in our dialogue here that she posted on New Year's Day. And finally, I linked to her organization, Free to Run, which of course we talked about a lot in this episode. If you guys can spare it, if you have the means, and if you appreciated her time on the show, go give them a donation. I've got a link to it in the show notes. It takes five seconds. I just did it myself. And uh, it'll help keep that organization afloat. It'll make a material difference in the lives of the women and girls in these conflict zones who are changing their communities through running, through being in the outdoors, what we all love so much and what we all take for granted. What a great episode. Thank you guys so much for being here. Leave a rating review if you enjoyed it. If not, we'll see you next time. Take care of yourselves. Okay, love you, bye.